What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, today's show is brought to you in part by Plexiderm. The holiday season is upon us. It's that time of year again, whether we like it or not. Family, friends, everything so conveniently documented in video and photography and posted on social media, capturing every laugh, smile, and under-eye bag, too. Uh, What was that last part? Oh, under-eye bags, wrinkles, crow's feet. Yes, those telltale signs of aging. Who wants those in your holiday cards? Not me, but now imagine that they're gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive plastic surgery. I'm talking about gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a topical, clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in just a matter of minutes. It's exactly what you need to get through the holiday season and beyond. And if you don't believe it, Don't sweat it. I didn't believe it either until I took the test. We got Plexiderm here. I tried it in a matter of 10 minutes. Those fine lines around my eyes disappeared. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody's going to know that you're using it. Get Plexiderm's holiday promotion right here. Go to Plexiderm.com. Use my code SEXYLIBERAL for 50% off plus an extra $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mention the code sexy liberal again that's 1-800-685-1292 mention the code sexy liberal plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code sexy liberal at checkout that's triplexiderm.com and now let the cartoons begin broadcasting from resistance headquarters relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables never give up never surrender this is the bob seska show presented by bubblegenius.com From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, December 4, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is one of our returning favorites, the great Cliff Schechter from the Unprecedented Podcast with John Aravosis, patreon.com slash unprecedented podcast. And Cliff sits on the board of one of the most important organizations of our time, the Ohio Innocence Project. Today, we're going to recap some of the Judiciary Committee's impeachment hearings and what's next for the Democratic presidential field as New Hampshire and Iowa get closer in the window. Meanwhile, if you like what you hear, please support this podcast on our Patreon page at bobseskashow.com. Okay, the hearing's in recess right now, so it's the perfect time to catch up with Cliff Schechter. Well, hello there. Hey, there he is. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. How's, uh, how's everything going on the unprecedented podcast? Are you still doing that? 
Yeah, we all, we're off air or on air right now. Oh, we're we're on. <laughs> You're a good man. I just want to make sure I don't say anything um, untoward or you know. Uh, <laughs> Get myself in trouble here. I just thought you had a lot of bad mouthing of John Aravosis to do here, and then you wanted to do it off the air and not on the air. Oh no, I'll do it off the air. I'm, I'm a, I'll do it on the air. Am I allowed to curse? Yes, of course. You're always allowed to curse. Everyone's well, allowed to curse on this well, show. Dude, I thought I was. Well, that guy's a fucking asshole. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love John. Yeah, yeah, and everything's going well for the show. Uh, you guys are picking up uh, more and more listeners, and so on. Everything's going good. We are, yeah. You know, it's a it's a struggle, as you know. No, I mean, yeah. it, it's not as much for you because you're more talented than I am. But <laughs> That's otherwise, funny. That's um, funny. Yeah. It, it, is, it is a bit. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, we have. We've grown like our listenership in general. We've gotten subscriptions. We've enjoyed it. I mean, it, it's you know, uh, kudos to you because it's. You do it, I think, what, three times a week at this point? Yeah, I do it like, I think I do 12 shows a week. I'm not sure exactly how I squeeze them all in, but that's that's kind of the goal. Holy crap. Yeah, no, uh, no, yeah. it's it's actually it's actually just four shows a week, but, you know, close enough. Well, I, I think what we should do, I've told John, I'm like, why don't we just do, like, two shows like we're doing now that are like an hour and ten minutes each, but chop them up into 15-minute blocks and then say that we're doing eight shows a week. <laughs> See, but now that's, fall, yeah, you need to do what people need to do with The Irishman, the new Scorsese movie, right? I, I saw a meme where they broke it up, that movie, which is like three and a half hours, they broke it up into four television episodes, uh, and they put the, the, yeah, the time code and everything in there so you know when to bail out, just like a television show would, right at that sort of cliffhanger moment so you can pick it up at the next episode. I think we need to do that with our podcast now. Is that what you're saying? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, if I need to have the sort of long-term intellectual consistency of a Jonathan Turley, what I'm saying. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my God. Yeah, let's talk about Jonathan Turley. Man, I'm sure you've been watching all of this. And uh, Jonathan Turley is like being tra- it's like being trapped in an argument with Glenn Greenwald. Goalpost moving, all the, the phony erudition disguising moronic ideas. Is that is that the impression you're getting to? Uh, yeah, it's like a completely situation where the guy literally has nothing consistent to say, yeah. nothing consistent with what he said during the Clinton years, That's nothing right. consistent with what he said during the Bush years. It's like the, the reign of the contrarian asshole is kind of what it is, <laughs> which right. is him and Dershowitz and Greenwald. There's this whole sort of, uh, I mean, Dershowitz obviously has other problems, <laughs> Epstein, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. but we'll see about that. But, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's like the, the you know we're, I guess we're the weird ones, man. I mean, here you and I are Bob. We've been doing this shit for nearly two decades, mm-hmm. and we like still have most of the same opinions. I mean, I've involved on stuff when better information has come along and said, "Hey, you're wrong." I will fully admit I'm wrong. Hey, I'm yeah. wrong plenty in life, but I don't wholesale change. I mean, this is a guy that like when you and I, and I know we both were fans of of Countdown with Overman back in the day. Yeah, like we'd watch that show. Turley was like one of the guys that would come on most and just rip into Bush over everything. Bush was, you know, needed to be impeached for this. I don't know if he ever said impeached, but kicked out for this reason, in trouble for this reason. And it's almost like what these guys do is then then like their little TV run or their little run of fame. I mean, Glenn Greenwald even admitted it in his interview. He's like, well, I can't help it if MSNBC won't invite me on TV. (laughs) So in other words, what you're saying is you have a God-given right to be on TV. You were born Mm -hmm. into it. And if MSNBC won't have you on, then you'll only really go on Tucker Carlson, the, the you know the frozen fish era racist uh, mm-hmm. show, and and that because 
you deserve to be on TV. I mean, that, that, that mentality, which Glenn admitted in that New Yorker profile, yeah. I think is the mentality of all of these guys. They get a little bit of fame, and they don't give a shit. It happened to Greta Van Susteren, too. She got her start with the OJ trials, and she was liberal as hell when they would invite her on CNN. Then she got her own show on Fox. I was like, bro, fuck that. I'll, I'll support Sarah Palin. <laughs> right. You I know, mean, like, that's what happens with these guys. Yeah. And so they like to be on television. I get the sense that Jonathan Turley loves being on television. In fact, I think he's competing with Gordon Sondland to determine which one is the bigger uh, attention whore in all of this. Like, Gordon, right. Son- Gordon and- Sondland was like a performance the other day, right? In his testimony. That's right. I, I get the feeling that uh, Jonathan Turley is also, you know, performing rather than just offering his erudition. That's correct. And, and none of these these guys, and, and I guess I should say gals, they're mostly guys. I mentioned mm. Greta Van Susteren. and there are others. They all seem to be lawyers, too. Do with that what you will. Yeah. Um, but they they all realize at some point that, that they're really not that interesting, and none of them really has a very good sense of humor, and they don't know anything uh, in the political world beyond what anybody else knows. They may in the legal world, but mm-hmm. they want to be on the political channels. So they realize they have to offer this contrarian garbage, you know, because that's the way you get on. I mean, it's oh, right. John, you know, even Jonathan Turley, who criticized Bush, is now saying Trump is OK. Even Dershowitz, who said the Supreme Court, you know, was wrong in deciding Bush v. Gore is now on Trump's side. I mean, yeah. you know, and Glenn Greenwald benefited from that a ton. Yeah. And, you know, it's guys like Jonathan Turley who make me yell at my television more than anyone else, I think, even more than just the rank idiots like Devin Nunes and Doug Collins. When I see guys like Jonathan Turley who ought to know better, I sit there and and yeah, and I'm just I'm screaming on Twitter. I haven't typed more in all caps than I have today watching Jonathan Turley's testimony because he's sitting there going, hey, where's all the evidence of an impeachable offense here? I don't see any evidence. There's nothing here in this report that Everywhere proves anything. Everywhere fucking face, maybe? Oh, my God. The president fucking confessed. Rudy Giuliani confessed. confessed. His lawyer confessed. His the, fucking chief of staff confessed. Yeah. I mean, literally, could you find more people to confess? I know. And on top of all of that, we have all kinds of expert witnesses who are saying, yes, the president did this. We have a transcript of the president's words saying, look, I need you to do us a favor, though, in exchange for those javelin missiles. I mean, my God, he's just operating in this fishbowl where that evidence hasn't been presented yet. I mean, basically, Jonathan Turley is presenting his case to the Fox News audience. This is all for the edification of Donald Trump. And by the way, the White House has already tweeted out a clip of Jonathan Turley saying there is no evidence. I mean, my God, the insulated no, nature of this is, is and isn't he, he's just pandering, right, to that Fox News audience. Of course he is. Oh, I mean, he knows better. I don't believe for a damn second, just like with Dershowitz, you know, unless maybe there's a legal issue with Epstein or something and why he was doing it. But I don't think right. so, because that had that hadn't really all broken out when he started defending Trump. I literally think these guys believe that they're, they're, they're narcissists. Their mug needs to be on TV. Mm-hmm. They, they love the attention that comes with it. They love the money opportunities that come with it, the speaking engagements. And let's be honest, the right wing gravy train is a hell of a lot. You know, you want to go speak at a Koch brothers event or some other, you know, bullshit event. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll whip out a $150, $150,000 check without even, you know, sweating. That's right. You know, on our side, we're, we're like, can you pay me? Can you pay my, my my uh, my bus ticket on Greyhound to get there across the fucking country. Like that's what we're that's what we're asking. We're like, I'd like to stop at a, like a a rest stop somewhere, maybe sleep overnight behind the bathrooms and and take the Greyhound. Can you pay for that? That's right. They're like that's no. A- 
Hey, do you I see? Mean, I mean, you. It's just. I was just gonna say. I mean, do you disagree or agree with the comments on Twitter right now that are saying that the Democrats need to spend more time addressing Jonathan Turley directly rather than just spending all the time on the uh, the Democratic witnesses, which are the other three constitutional scholars? I don't know. I, I would like to see one of them ask about. You know, the evidence, all of the evidence that we have gathered or that the Democrats have gathered over all of the uh, the inquiry so far. But I don't see a particular need to spend a lot of time on this guy because, well, that's exactly why he's there in order to scramble the playing field, to scramble the playing board, to to be a spoiler in all of this, to get as much attention as he can get. uh, So he can muddy the water. Yeah. Right. Right. That's all they need. They want they. If they can put one person up spouting absolute bullshit for every kind of 10 that we can, the hope is still that that, I mean, you know, this is, this is stuff that is as old as politics and, and is pioneered by the tobacco companies, right? Mm-hmm. Manufacturing doubt. I mean, that's what they're, that's what they're doing. No, I mean, here's what I would say about Turley, right? You know, we use the word impeachment in politics, but as we know, it's also used in the, the related legal world of impeach the witness. That's right. The only way they should directly talk to Turley, as far as I'm concerned, and really concentrate on him is if they're going to give his bullshit context. So I'm good with them going at him and quoting what he said, you know, 10 years ago and comparing. I mean, some people have, have tweeted out stuff, things he was saying during the Clinton years, mm-hmm. um, and it's completely inconsistent with what he's saying. Now, that I'd be fine with. Yeah. But I don't see just going at him to go at him. I mean, because you're not going to get anything there. You really, the only way is if you have a gotcha moment where you can point out his inconsistencies completely and rip it, you know, rip apart his testimony to the point where people in the mainstream media will find it sexy enough to write about it. I, I think ultimately, I think I think ultimately the people who are insisting that uh, Turley get more time from the Democrats are the people who often feed trolls <laughs> like me. And I and Jonathan Turley is there to be a troll as well as the uh, Republicans on the panel, too. And uh, in no other case other than Turley, is it more obvious when we look at Doug Collins, who, by the way, strikes me as a kind of uh, Southerner who's probably participated in at least one posse. I owns at least several seersucker suits. I just get that impression from oh. Doug Collins. It just seems like he's like a, a oh. Dust Bowl uh, 1930s cartoon character who's about to muster up a posse <laughs> to chase down someone with brown skin. It's like through the bayou or something like that, don't you think? Uh, that's, uh, oh, absolutely. He comes, I mean, you know, the problem when you say that is you being one is, <laughs> is that so many of these guys give off that vibe now right. of where like, if I were to drive off, you know, the main road onto the into the wrong sort of way in like rural Mississippi or Oklahoma, I'd be like, you know, immediately like, oh, uh, my name, no, my name's Cliff Smith, and uh, no, uh, uh, I'm from uh, uh, no Albuquerque. They may think I'm, uh, they, they'd probably just think I'm like Latino or something because that's the way they think. I'd be like, I'm from, uh, you know, Middle America, Duluth. I'm from Duluth, and. Uh, you know, we're out here uh, looking for the good people who want to make America great again. I mean, because he, the, these guys all literally look like my vision of what a Klan member would look like. That's right. If I accidentally drove down the wrong road, and they're like, hey, we got a party we'd like to invite you to. You're going to have fun. And Louis Gohmert's oh, feeling you know, completely like, irrelevant now because Louis Gohmert thought he had the market cornered on the slack jawed yokel vote. And now here comes Doug Collins, right? Uh, just t- stealing all this like, thunder. Damn, I thought I was dumber than fuck. Look at that guy. <laughs> 
That's right. Oh my god. Yeah, and it just seems like they're multiplying like gremlins or something like that. Someone someone oh. someone dropped water on Louis Gomert in the middle of the night and suddenly a bunch of uh, things popped out and one looked like Doug Collins and that's 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 how he's there. Uh shit. I mean, that's pretty much that's right. You say like global warming to them after midnight and they fucking expand. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Oh my god! And but whatever you do, do not feed Louis Gomert and Doug Collins after midnight because then it's just a whole other disaster. Not. Could you believe we like we we were at this point now? It's it's um yeah, it's insane. I yeah. mean, again, there's there's really no nothing approaching two sides to this. Mm-mm. It's not even a seventy thirty or a ninety ten situation. We just have. I mean, it's almost like this is a full test of have we reached full nineteen eighty four? I mean, one side is honestly just sort of dribbling over themselves and, you know, jibber jabbering and saying nonsense and, you know, almost pooping themselves. <laughs> and the other side is offering like a open and shut case, coherent case yeah. uh, of guilt. And again, I'm, I, you know, obviously look, I'm, I'm on the democratic side. I'm, I'm progressive. I am whatever, but I can't trying to be as objective as possible. I cannot imagine, you know, a, a situation where things could be more obvious, more open and shut than this. Mm-hmm. And yet we're having these, you know, these, we have to have these conversations because these guys just, you know, I mean, Devin Nunez, and I mean, and obviously I'm wondering at this point on how many of these folks will be implicated in the end. That's right. In fact, I think the Republican argument is exclusively, no, I, I really think the Democrats are coming up with copious evidence. We have transcripts. We have the president confessing. We've got Mick Mulvaney confessing. We've got Rudy Giuliani confessing. We've got Ron Johnson confessing. We've got a cover-up in progress. Um, we've got obstruction of the investigation in progress in obvious plain view to everybody. And the only argument that the Republicans can come up with to debunk all of that stuff is, uh-uh, no. Most- you know what I worry about, though, honestly, yeah. uh, Bob, is I worry that we've, we may have gotten to a point, not as far as I'm concerned, but as far as some Democrats, moderates, whoever else you want to say, that we're reaching almost a too-big-to-fail point. Yeah, right. That they're scared that if they get to the bottom of this, Devin Nunez is clearly implicated in this. Mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani is clearly implicated in this. I'm sorry, but I, I've been saying this now for two years. Sean Hannity is clearly implicated in this. Right. I mean, from his contacts with Assange and his contacts with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, what's his name, Credico, and his contacts with um, uh, Roger Stone right. and all that. He's knee-deep in this. I mean, you may be talking about multiple people at all the right-wing powerhouses. You're talking the NRA. You're talking Fox News. You're talking members of Congress. You're talking about members of the Senate. What, why is Lindsey Graham suddenly the way he is? Rand Paul and John Kennedy and these guys? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. At this point, try and convince me. That, that either they're, they're not being bought off or Russia doesn't have something that it's using against them. I mean, you know, I mean, what happens when, I mean, because I get it. I mean, I, I believe in a two-party system or three, stable party, whatever it is, but we need like a, a legit center-right party for a mm-hmm. democracy to work. I don't know what the, what the, because I mean, how many of these guys are, are, are just knee-deep in this? Mm-hmm. And what, what do we find when we keep turning over stones? And I, you know, Roger Stone. No, that was bad. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, know, fact, I mean, I know I want to. We have to keep going. Yeah, in fact, I could go off on my whole speech about never Trumpers right now, and, and in, in terms of how important it is for I think the the Democrats to reach out to those voters, especially to some of the uh, people who are on television representing never Trumpers, and uh, and form some sort of alliance because I think the last time there was ever any kind of 
agreement between us and people like Bill Crystal or David Frum and Tom Nichols and John Schindler and all those guys was for about five minutes after 9-11. And I, you know, I always look back at that time and I go, you know, if George W. Bush had only uh, done something instead of the war on terror that would have united the world, <laughs> we would have been in much better, uh, much Can better you shape. You know what I mean? Like the, the entire world. He would have won re-election with like 98%. Yeah. He'd probably be remembered as a, as a great president, yeah. as dumb as he was. But the problem was, you know, and that may, for all we know, may, he's a, he, his, everybody always says what a likable guy he is privately. Mm. I'm not exonerating him in the slightest. Don't no. get me wrong. But <laughs> no, I wouldn't he surrounded so. himself with he surrounded himself with the nasty, vicious troll types like Carl Rove and Dick Cheney and mm. Rumsfeld, these nasty sons of bitches who just all they knew was fighting and all they knew was was ideology and pushing for the right. And you know, you're right because I think if he'd gone the Colin Powell way, yeah. um, and 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 he, you're, after that, that that moment, and we could have we'd have a different history. And so, I agree with you. You know, and I know there are people that you have on your show, in fact, who, who even disagree, mm-hmm. right? I think you're, you're yep. our, our pal, common pal, Drift Glass, and other folks like that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I I've read enough, and I'm enough of a history guy, whatever. You know, and everybody, all you do is go read the book How Democracies Die, and you learn the same lessons, which are the ones that survive authoritarianism, whether it comes from the left or the right. Yeah are the ones where all the other parties unite against them. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the sort of rational, you know, non-fringe uh, part of politics on the left and the right gets together. Yeah. And, you know, a bunch of never-Trumpers from among them, Max Boot, others, some of them have even apologized for past stances and don't mm-hmm. seem to be the same people anymore. Yeah. Others seem like they may be the same people, but they at least see that this guy is terrible. I, I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. I don't care. To me, it's sort of the end game here is restoring democracy, uh, you know, bringing, electing a leader that at least can, can, you know, can unite the same among us right. and do things that are in the majority of Americans interests Yeah, and, you know, and, and not keep us on the quick road towards politicizing every, you know, professional organization from the CIA to the FBI, to the judiciary, to all the other things that make this a democracy. Yeah, and so I, feel, I agree with you 100 percent on that. I feel like there's time for a truth and reconciliation commission after the emergency is over. But now that we're in this emergency, my God, we've got another 10 percent of the electorate who's willing to uh, to join us uh, in facing off this major, major existential crisis. And I think. That's partly what drives my desire to see some kind of cooperation between the Democrats and the Never Trumpers and, uh, and to welcome them in, at least for the time being, to get us to help to get us the hell out of all of this. And certainly there are, you know, you were mentioning Drift Glass and so on who are opposed to that concept, and I completely understand their reasoning. Uh, I also understand that the Never Trumpers aren't making it easy on themselves either. They're, no, they're you know, things. Yeah. I remember you wrote a column, well, go, you know, I think you went after Tom Nichols and some others, and yeah, I don't Rick, mean Rick went Wilson. after in a nasty way. Yeah. yeah, you were pointing out some, some things that I think need to be pointed out. I don't know Tom at all. We've had Rick Wilson on our podcast. I know Rick a little bit. Um, and you know, they can take it. They're big boys. You can, we can disagree and we can argue over stuff and we can say they're, you know, they're, they are not always right. And they, you know, when it comes to their, the, in fact, I would say they're most of the time not when it comes to, <laughs> to at least that, the, this, you know, how the Democrats should, should behave within the democratic party yeah. because they don't know our terrain. 
the way we don't know their terrain as well. So, you know, I mean, in some ways they're very useful because we're now winning over, you know, we started off uh, probably over a decade ago now, longer, starting to win the sort of what we call the, the more liberal suburbs of the more liberal cities. You know, you're in New York and New Jersey and, and L.A. and whatever. We're now winning suburbs. I mean, the suburbs south of me, you know, in, where I'm in Cincinnati, northern Kentucky, are what delivered uh, Kentucky to, to Governor Andy Bashir and helped kick out Matt Bevin. Yeah. You know, uh, that we, we, won, we won suburbs in places like Charleston, South Carolina, and you know, Omaha in 2018. And this time around, you know, people forget we lost that governor's race in, in Mississippi. We only lost by a couple points. We won the suburbs for the first time ever, I believe, of Memphis, the suburbs in Mississippi, and then the suburbs of Jackson, Mississippi, which helped kick out some Republican who'd been there since, like, 1986, elected an African-American woman in a majority white district because of the suburban part. So we're, no, it, we're way past winning liberal suburbs. We're now winning suburbs, conservative suburbs, suburbs with people who consider themselves center-right to conservative are now banding the Democratic Party. That's right. And, I mean, the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And, like, we need to be able to speak to them, too, because I think they're going to be a part of this coalition. Uh, for, I mean, maybe not long-term, but the Republican Party becomes more healthy. But certainly in 2020, they are. Mm-hmm. And we need to talk to them. So it's smart to understand what Rick Wilson and some of these guys are saying when it comes to how to speak to those voters. But no, how we speak to progressives, I kind of feel like you and I know that a little bit better than, than they do. And you know, I want to swing, know. I want to swing back around to the hearings here in just a second, but I, I, I want to talk about something that's uh, very specific to your wheelhouse. You were talking about Kentucky and what was going on there. I've been noticing that in your home state of Ohio, that it looks like Donald Trump is not underwater there uh, with his approval rating. He's actually got a higher approval than his disapproval in Ohio. Is your state becoming permanently red or is it just a feature of Donald Trump? Uh, The problem is, is that his bullshit on tariffs and trade plays particularly well in northern Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, in the sort of heavy industrial areas, uh, where he makes these kinds of promises, I think it gains him a few points. Look, running as a uh, criticizing trade deals has been one of the ways Sherrod Brown has always done so well here. Um, and so, but no, I don't think it's it's red. Absolutely, I shouldn't say I don't think. Absolutely, it's not red. I mean, a classic example is in 2018. Um, you know, the the state voted literally like I think it was 50.1 to 49 point something Republican to Democrat. So the Republicans won by like six-tenths of a point or something. Yeah. So I think we're, I call us a purple, a purplish red state. But we're, you know, I, I think it's purple is, is certainly closer to what we are. And I think it's possible to, to move some of those, some of, of our population back to blue. I mean, if we want to speak about this just demographically and we're being honest here. Uh, so anybody who wants to sort of come at me for wishing death upon people and not, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to be honest here. <laughs> I mean, the older... So if older rural areas die out in, let's say, Wyoming, mm-hmm. do you know what replaces them? What's that? Younger rural areas. Yeah. There's nothing but rural areas. Right. You don't fucking have any, right? <laughs> but in Ohio, because it's such a close balance, when the older rural areas are, are dying out as they are here, what's increasing, where the population increases are happening, are what is, we call them the three C's, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, three cities you know, anywhere from 300-something thousand to half a million 600,000 people, you know, they're not huge cities like New York or Philly, but they're cities with, with expanding suburbs and those areas are trending very heavily below. So if you just look at it demographically in the next sort of half a decade, I actually think this state is going to be purple and it could even become purple lean blue. So 
we got to, you know, Trump's message, the trade message is probably more successful in Ohio and Michigan than just about anywhere else. And so I do think that some of that is what has given him maybe a couple extra points here. But now, I mean, we just, we, we just had a huge 2018 in terms of we won two state Supreme Court seats. Yes, we lost some other stuff statewide. Very close. Again, it wasn't blowouts. It was by two, three points. Here and there, we won back a number of state house seats. And you have to remember how gerrymandered it is. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, that's my, I, I think we're, we're solidly purple. We lean a little red light right now. And I think in a half dozen years, we could lean a little bit blue, maybe even more. Yeah, that's right. That'd be my it, honest appraisal. The, the amazing thing, Cliff, about those Rust Belt states uh, where manufacturing is king and where Donald Trump went into those states and said he promised all kinds of uh, bringing back factory jobs, bringing back uh, all kinds of new manufacturing. And then we find out that manufacturing for the last four months has been in recession. And it looks yep. like Donald Trump is actually going to win like the, the factory vote, the, the manufacturing vote in a climate in which manufacturing has slipped into recession on his watch. It's an amazing thing yeah. to observe how he's still able to go down and pretend like he's opening an Apple factory and wherever the hell he was with Tim Cook or go into <laughs> some of the factories, yeah, in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio, Pennsylvania. Like, hey, you, see this, you see this shit sitting on my head? We're going to manufacture that for all the bald men in the community. It will bring back so many jobs. <laughs> That's right. That's right. In fact, the toupee manufacturing might actually do, be doing really, really well. It's like a boom time, maybe. But I mean, as far as every exactly. other form of manufacturing, it's falling apart on his watch and it's just not eking through into the conversation, is it? I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I want to go back to maybe Elizabeth Warren mentioning this once over the summer, the, the situation the manufacturing's in right now on Trump's watch. But other than that, I don't see any other Democrats hammering that. And it seems like it would be perfect fuel Especially for when Obama, you know did the auto recovery when trump has also bankrupted and screwed farmers and there's in the in the western part of ohio you know the part that borders indiana is has significant farming communities you know the problem here is uh, you know one of these guys spoke up and even has spoken about running as jim jordan he, one of these guys has become kind of a little bit famous you may have seen him yeah. he you know has a big farm and got screwed by by the tariffs and mm. i think that that um Sadly, you know, we, we, we you can call it a cult, and some of Trumpism is a cult. Certainly, some of it also is. You know, we all exist in cultures, we all exist in communities where certain behaviors acceptable and not acceptable. And in the same way that wealthy suburban women, after all the stuff came out, has come out about Trump and women and Trump's insulting people, whatever, the types of women that would have voted for Mitt Romney, it's become sort of unacceptable in your social circle to support Donald Trump, mm. and we're winning over those voters in huge ways. Sadly, the reverse is in some of these communities, these white working class communities, you know, Trump's the tough guy who speaks tough and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he's going to fuck the Chinese when it comes to trade. And, you know, it becomes unacceptable that even if you're more progressive, you know, you become sort of culturally shunned if you speak up and say, you know, this guy's a freaking fraud. Yeah. He's not doing it. He's, you know, manufacturing's crashing. He's bailing out our farms because of his stupid and, and you know, his ob obscenely naive policies. But I do think a small percent of them, and that frankly may be all you need to win in Ohio, uh, are are reachable. Yeah. Certainly, polling shows the women, working class white women, are reachable. Mm -hmm. Working class white men, not as much. But I think if you you, de you dig into the data and you find certain correlations, uh, I know this may sound like evil Facebook stuff, but I'm not talking about illegal shit like you know like that chump Zuckerberg. I'm saying 
you look at the data of what people's lifestyles, what their choices are, how they, I think there's a certain number of people that are more open-minded in those communities, particularly in smaller cities, ones you'll have never heard of, you know? Um, but you know, you, as I remember, you come from a relatively, or at least you spent time in a relatively smaller city in Pennsylvania. Am I right? Oh yeah. Where were you again? I was in Reading, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yay for me. Voters are more open-minded because even the small city is very small, you know, like 20,000 people mm. are more diverse than the rural areas. And they, they deal with some, especially ones up on Lake Erie are dealing with the environmental garbage of, of the Koch brothers type dumping shit in there. And they have these, you know, these algae, you know, these algae blooms in the summer where you can't let your kids swim. They're dealing with issues the rest of us care about. They're dealing with certain environmental issues. They're dealing with other things where I think some of them may be winnable and, and we just need to look. We need somebody needs smart targeting to look and find those folks. Because, again, I know what you just said about Ohio, but I, I think it, I don't know what poll you saw. It's close either way. If his, if, his, uh, if his favorability is above his unfavorability, it's something like 48, 46. I've seen a few others that have him underwater, not by a lot, not by nearly as much as I would want it to be, but have him more in a 47, 49 position or 43, 45 is in 45 unfavorable, 43 favorable. Yeah. So, I mean, he, it is moving. It's, it's moving back and forth, and he certainly is not in a safe position here. Uh, so that if you're going to have – if we have the kind of money spent on this election, look – you're going to run out of TV stations and, and digital ways to reach people eventually in Florida and North Carolina and hell, even Arizona in this one in Wisconsin and Michigan. So why wouldn't you then say, well, what's the next year? Why wouldn't you go into Ohio? That's if, right. If maybe moving 3% of the vote here is enough for you to win. You know, the so, gr- I mean, I hope some people get that. You know, the great irony, Cliff, is that um, while the Republicans constantly criticize the left for its identity politics, quote unquote, um, it's illustrated in no better place than on the Republican side with Donald Trump. It seems like Donald Trump, and, and this goes to what you were saying about uh, voters in Ohio, despite the manufacturing numbers and so on, uh, still siding with Donald Trump because there's an identity thing there, isn't there? I mean, people relate to Donald Trump yeah. as a guy somehow, as like a man's, like an alpha man. And the, uh, and the additional irony on top of all of that is the fact that He's not. He's one of the whiniest people to ever hold national office. And oh my God, uh, he's like a gelatinous little balloon. I mean, if this guy is, walks around acting like he's tough, I could roll him down a fucking hill. I mean, <laughs> like, give me a break. Oh, please you know, do. Man, please. Boobs, man boobs McGee there. Oh, my God. I'm really, I just, I don't know. I may get in trouble now. With no, that's okay. Left, but I don't give a shit. It's just incredible to me that people look at this, is bloated, chubby, ice cream eating, you know, fake haired, like, like just ridiculous, you know, raccoon eyed. Uh, I mean, he's, he's like a cartoon character, but I guess, you know, if you think about it, sadly, that was what Berlusconi was in Italy. And a lot of the right stuck with him, you know, like yeah. the, that's what a lot of these strong men are. I mean, think about, you know, like a, you know, to go back in time, think about how puny uh, a Hitler or a Stalin or these other characters or Mussolini, they're always like these just, Short, you know, stubby. I mean, they're they're never, you know, or there's always something about them that causes them deep insecurity. Oh my god! And I say this, by the way, Vladimir Putin's got to be on that list. (laughs) Yeah, he's got too. Like, how many times does he ride a tiger with his damn shirt off? Yeah, but he's also a little man. He's also a very short man. Right. You know, I mean, Ben Shapiro. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You mean? mean (laughs) Are you making fun of the Shapiro bot? Are you really? (laughs) I am. And the beauty is, I am not a tall man. Yeah. But I, I do, I, I'm like 5'8", maybe. But I look at Shapiro, and, you know, he may want to claim he's 5'7". Yeah. That ain't happening, kid. You're 5'5 on, like, a spiked hair day. 
you know, Baby Yoda <laughs> towers over Ben Shapiro. I think that's that's how that works. Yeah, Baby Yoda is sort of. So I mean, you know, I mean, that's the thing is that they identify with these the the deep insecurities that leads to the braggadocio and the rage and all that. Mm. I think a lot of these voters. So I mean, I don't want to bore people on your, you know, but I went. I mean, you you may appreciate this as a, a guy who did grow up not, or at least spent time not far from Philly. Mm. You know, I went to Penn for my undergrad, and I wrote like a senior honors thesis on what we were then calling Reagan Democrats. They also in Philadelphia were known as Rizzo Democrats. Yeah. You know, for the the mayor the mayor of Philly who had been a Republican Rizzo who'd been this racist you know sob in the seventies eighties you know and won over a lot of former working-class Democrats. And I went up into Northeast Philly, these neighborhoods, and spoke to people and, and just recorded their thoughts on why historically they had changed, what had led to it. And you know, a lot of the same stuff they liked about that guy and they liked about Rudy Giuliani in New York, his fake tough guy act, and they liked about you know, it, it, Chris Christie in New Jersey. It, these guys are always the same. These, mm-hmm. these, these bullyish you know, sort of guys. Underneath, there's a ton of insecurity and weakness but you know what? That's the problem is with their voters. These, some, a lot of these white working class men, there's a ton of un- insecurity and weakness. It's the same thing. Yeah. And so it, it, it's sort of like they're projecting, they're, they're feeling what Trump is emanating, quite frankly, mm-hmm. which is, you know, fuck those other guys who are doing better than us. You know, we're, we're really better than them and hey, we're tougher than them and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, I have sympathy. I really do. But yeah. at the same time. You know, I look at this country's history and I look at the northern migration. I look at what we what we've put African-Americans through for the entire history of this country, which is, you know, I could go on for hours about the shamefulness of all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they African-Americans had to move wholesale, pick up and leave rural areas of the south, move to cities where they were forced into areas they didn't want to live in, where they couldn't reach jobs. There's no public transportation and couldn't get good schooling and all that. You know, but 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 we're going to pander now because a factory has left your town. Well, maybe you just have to leave your town, yeah. you know, yeah. and doesn't I mean, I'm sorry, but people have gone through much worse shit to move from where they've ended up. I'm not saying I have no sympathy. I do. It's just the, the sort of the, some of the attitude of it all has to come to me when a lot of other people have gone through a lot more yeah. to get to where they need to get to a safe place where they can have a job and have a family and, and, and you know. I don't know. That, yeah. that's, those, those are my, so, I mean, Trump appeals to all of that. You know, I, what I would say, Bob, when I, you know, and I promise I won't bore people with any more history, <laughs> but <laughs> I did go to, I did start off a PhD program in history and I'm ABD. And if I were ever going to write a dissertation, it would be on the nationalization of Southern racist politics, mm-hmm. you know, via Fox talk radio, because when you're talking about that identification, remember the South is always a one party state first for Democrats Yep. And then for Republicans, they did you, they voted almost unanimously. Whoever was against the blacks, quote unquote, was, was their person. Right. And we didn't have that in the North. We had other sort of allegiances, even if people had some racism to them, um, they, you know, and they were, were racist, quite frankly, they were, they were proud of being from the North. They were proud of being from the union. It used to be mm-hmm. such a huge thing in Ohio, you know, this country that's produced so, produced so many presidents and Ulysses S. Grant, you know, a, a obviously important general in that war. I know you're a Civil War buff, so you'll appreciate it. Oh, yeah. um, you know, and, and that was a big part. I mean, the, the runaway. I mean, my wife went to Miami, you know, University of Miami of Ohio here, where they still some of the fraternities have some tunnels underground where African-Americans used to escape from the South Kentucky through here. And they would be housed and led to safety. Yeah. I mean, we played we, the, the Freedom Museum here. I would recommend everybody go to it. It's all about that. We played a huge role 
in 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 you know in the, in the freedom in those looking to get to freedom and and people used to take pride in sort of they're from Wisconsin where the Republican Party was founded you know or they were from Ohio that had stood up to the South and had this important general and created presidents and astronauts and you know I mean and yet what Fox has done literally is is, is reach the lizard brain of insecure generally older lesser educated whites in rural parts of the North. Um, and turned them into Southerners. Yeah, in fact, they literally made it so everything is about race and everything is about sex, you know, as in man versus woman and everything, you know, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, in fact, it's a shame. So it's an identity thing. The, the the term Southern strategy is now an anachronism because it's no longer about the South anymore, right? It's about all of the country. Like they're applying the, the Southern strategy to... Uh, Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and all of these Trump states, yep. right? That where they're uh, exploiting and stoking these uh, pockets of racial animosity. And this is all, as far as history goes, this all takes us back to the post-Civil War era and specifically around the turn of the century where it was thought right. that in order to reunify the country after the the tumultuous Civil War and, and the, uh, the factionalism that arose a, a, as a consequence of that, is to um, claim that African-Americans were mutual enemies of both the North and the South. So let's all rally around right. this this villain now that we're going to manufacture in, in black people, uh, specifically black yep. men, if you look at uh, movies like Birth of a Nation and some of the silent of films of that era, yeah. And, and right, the 19 teens when they were kind of reinstituting, you know, a lot there a lot of Jim Crow when yep. it, or, or, you know, 10 years earlier than that when baseball, people forget that baseball originally had had African-American players, yep. you know, but they reinstituted. I mean, you know, we were headed in that direction and, and it, but now they had to reinstitute segregation and almost de facto slavery, you know, with the folks who couldn't afford, you know, so they had to basically live on a farm and were quote unquote paid sharecroppers and the rest. And, 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 you know, I mean, you're exactly right. And the biggest example, look at West Virginia broke away from Virginia on this issue on slavery, mm-hmm. on, on, you know, uh, race, you know, and was forever voted in a progressive direction because it was part of the North. Yep. It had fought against the evil of slavery, you know, and, and they took the West Virginians took pride in being on the right side. And there's a regional identity and what Fox and, and, you know, and the and the Republican the right of the Republican Party, I'd say the the you know sort of radicalized evangelical churches as regional identities kind of started move, going away as people moved between places, as mainline churches started becoming less attended, so people were sort of looking for belonging. You know, what stepped in these radical right ideologies, especially as, as some of these folks are getting older, and so you have these people that were JFK Democrats, FDR Democrats, understood everything, were once in favor of racial equality. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I mean, you, you know, you, this may not happen to you, and it didn't happen to me, thankfully, but I have numerous friends whose parents can be described this way. Oh, they, yeah. You know, from northern cities, suburbs, rural areas, whose politics were, you know, they were Democrats, and they believed in this stuff, and everything was turned on its head. Yes, some of it was Rush Limbaugh and all that garbage, but... You know, if ever if anybody ever does an accounting of the lives ruined and the evil wrought by the Murdoch family and, and by what Fox has done to this country, um, uh, you know, it's a never ending list. That would be what I would I would sit down and look at when Fox came online in 1996. I mean, started off, you know, was on TV mm-hmm. and trace what's happened to this country since then. And the only thing that's equal to that, of course, now is, well, you know, every every uh, action has a reaction, doesn't it? And it's now led to. As, as folks have moved for opportunity, 
into cities and suburbs in the South, your Atlantas and Houston's and Dallas and places like that. Well, what ends up happening? Those, those guys, more moderate people that, who, who are always consider themselves Yankee Republicans are now repulsed and horrified by this party, as yeah. they should be. Yeah. You know, and they're and they're moving in droves in our direction. So it's shaking things up a lot, you know, and, and it really is going to end up being city and suburbs versus rural and exurbs. Good news is we're growing, you know, and they're shrinking. Oh, yeah. Along course, the, you know, along, the, we have to protect democracy in the meantime. And along those lines is um, the fact that Kamala Harris has dropped out so unexpectedly yeah. and, and so soon. Is that a feature of this? electability argument is this democrats going you know what black woman i don't think so i don't think she can get elected which obviously i extremely disagree with i i certainly not uh, supporting that right. point of view but it seems like a point of view that happens to be there like everyone's concerned about defeating trump despite the fact that he's a weak candidate he's a weak incumbent but i i feel like that electability argument has has suffered a casualty right now, and that is Kamala Harris, who I think still has a lot to add to the campaign. Um, oh I, God, I have absolutely. some theories about her as a vice presidential running mate. That's a different story. But do you feel she's like one of the top? I mean, she's yeah. got to be a top two or three choice. Or, or yeah. I mean. Okay, well, uh, let me shut up and let you finish. Well, I was your show, and I'm <laughs> I was just going to say, I, go I, I feel like this is a, a matter of Democrats going. I don't know if a black woman can defeat Donald Trump. And I, I so strongly disagree with that point of view. I feel like there's a, a mistaken perception of what the Democratic Party base happens to be. I think a lot of people believe that the Bernie Sanders group, uh, that faction, the progressive left, is mm-hmm. the base of the party. When, in fact, I believe, I strongly believe that it's Obama voting black women. And I, I, I feel like in that regard... Kamala Harris might be one of the most electable of the candidates. Well, now former candidate, don't you think? I agree. I mean, let's start with, let's remember that woke white Twitter is to the left of the African-American population on almost everything. Right. If you, when you do polling, mm. right. I mean, yeah, it, I mean, majority. And again, I happen to be the left of, I guess, of the African-American population on this particular question. When I, but I'll never forget when, when all this stuff happened with Ralph Northam, a majority of African-Americans in Virginia did not want him to resign. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought he should resign because I think that there, I, I, I am never one of these cancel culture, blah, blah, blah guys. But I do think there are certain places you, you, you can't and shouldn't be able to come back from. That's right. And anything with the Klan and any of that shit and joking about any of that stuff, I'm sorry. That's that, that. But point being, I was to the right of you know the African-American population on that question. Mm-hmm. Um you know, most of like a far left Twitter on all sorts of things, you know, the irony of these folks think they're speaking for everybody. They think they're speaking for the black community and they're not. Um, so let me go straight to what you brought up. I find it's a terrible shame um, to, to let my, and I did on my podcast relatively often, I said, I've got fluid choices in terms of there are a couple of people I like more than others, but Kamala Harris was my top choice. Yeah. Um, I think that, that I, I don't think, I mean, I think it, it, the insanity of thinking that, that she's not electable you know, after we after we elected a guy named Barack Hussein Obama, I mean, Jesus, if anybody wasn't going to be electable, yeah. you know, we're like, hey, hi, we've never had a black president before. And, and you're you're African-American. Uh, and you have a name that sounds a little bit unusual. Hey, could you make it make it more controversial? Yeah. And it was almost like, yeah, how about how about Hussein is my middle name? The guy <laughs> we went to war with like five years ago. That's right. Oh, OK. Yeah. Let's add that into just see if we can fuck everything up. Uh-huh. Um, and, he, and he won. You know, with a large margin, he won by seven points. It wasn't close. Yeah. 
charisma can make up for all sorts of things. I, 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 what I like to think, look, I think there's probably a few, I don't even know it's worth a few percent, maybe a few people. I mean, my guess is there are some people who, who have this ridiculous belief that, that a black woman can't win. And, and, you know, nobody that I know, frankly, but I guess some people may. I've seen it mentioned on Twitter. I've seen it mentioned on news programs. I, uh, you know, so maybe. Uh, my feeling is more, sadly, that I don't think the people running Kamala Harris's campaign did a service to her campaign. Yeah, I agree. It sort of reminds yeah. me of you've been this great prosecutor. You've done all this stuff. I mean, could I tell you any cases she tried? I can't. I should be able to. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and I'm a remember. I'm a board member, and you. I know you know this well with the Innocence Project, and I think she had a, she she had a, a blind spot when it came to that kind of thing. But my God, if ever it was crying out for a speech like Obama's speech on race and some of other speeches, make a big speech, stand up strongly for the fact that you're a prosecutor and proudly for what you've accomplished and make that your message. The, the first time I feel like they ever even mentioned that was three days before she dropped out with that great ad. Yeah. And if that had been the central part of her campaign, it's not like you can't forcefully make an argument and also say you had a blind spot and apologize and reach out to people and say, yes, while I'm not going to stop being tough on terrorists, I'm not going to stop being tough on rapists and murderers. We have to get it right, mm-hmm. and we have to do everything possible. You know, this this was a message she could have run. It reminds me, you know, I mean, now I'm going back to history again. So you may, you know, maybe third times a charm, and <laughs> there's some sort of a buzzer you can push that will like eject me from where I'm sitting onto the fucking sky. But, but it reminds me of I brought up astronauts in Ohio. John Glenn, you know, from from Ohio, one of the, the things we have the most pride about, literally a war hero. Literally a guy who went to fucking space and around the earth first, um, you know, in 1984, running against Mondale and some of these guys in Democratic primaries ran on his Senate record. And, you're, and I wasn't old enough. I mean, I was an 11, 12 year old kid then. But if I'd been old enough, I'd be like, I would have been like, what the fuck? Are you guys crazy? <laughs> uh-huh. Show pictures of the man fighting as a fighter pilot in World War II and, you know, and show pictures of the man, you know, orbiting the fucking earth. That's Are right. you crazy? Yeah. You know? Um, but they, but they, they chose to run on his legislative record, which was, which is not inspirational, was insane. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I hear. Yeah. I can imagine Kamala Harris with her charisma narrating ads about some of the, the people, victims, people she helped, some of the people she put away, some of the ways that she stood up for democratic values and American values and the Constitution and everything we care about in those ads. I can picture them. And, and she never did them. No. You know, and I know some of the story here. I don't want to, I can't go into it, but I know some people behind the scenes. Those ads were, were, were sitting there. You know, that's people, a sh- you know, people, even that one that came out had been made a few months before. Like, you know, they, they were, they, that narrative that had been argued over, like the people who, whoever got the final decision-making authority there, made some really bad choices. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I, I couldn't agree with you more. That ad, that last ad, and the one we're talking about is where Kamala Harris presents herself as the anti-Trump. And she compares and contrasts her record and what she is defining herself as versus Donald Trump. And I think it was so effective. And I feel like, good God, if she had been running that ad in uh, Ohio and New Hampshire and South Carolina starting in the summer, I think she'd be in a much yep. better position now. And of course, it's all Monday morning quarterbacking. But of course, but it, I really believe the narrative that. Narrative is important. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's Monday morning quarterback. But my God, like, what is the country crying out for right now? Like, mm-hmm. you know, again, the majority of us, the, the sentient beings among us, including the sentient Republicans, are looking at Donald Trump horrified and looking at the group of his henchmen and seeing multiple indictments and seeing, you know, crimes every day. I mean, whether it's even smaller ones that we don't consider as big a deal, the Hatch Act 
Yeah. I mean, how many times has Kellyanne Conway broken the Hatch Act? You know, a half mm-hmm. dozen? I mean, <laughs> these people, even if it's small crimes, big crimes, they don't follow the law. They don't care about the law. They don't care about the Constitution. If ever there was a time to be like, I'm going to, you know, I'm a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I put this person away, that person away. I'm going to prosecute this motherfucker. That's right. You know, it was her to run that campaign. And again, you, it's not like it's mutually exclusive. You can't, you, just because you do that doesn't mean you can't reach out to the innocence community, you know, uh, because. I know a lot of these folks who are not happy with Kamala Harris because of her record in California. That's fixable. You can reach out and you can have a big speech and say, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. We need to be tough, but we need to be fair. And mm-hmm. I had a blind spot there. But don't think for a minute when it comes to, to criminals like Donald Trump, and maybe you don't use that word, but whatever word you want to use, that well, I'm not going to fully prosecute the case. I mean, you know, tell the story of how you grew up in, in ad and how you got to where you are now, yeah. of things you saw of how you lived the American dream and the American story. And I just, you know, it's like she had all this ability to be inspirational. That's why it reminds me of the John Glenn thing. Mm-hmm. And instead she chose to, to run on non-inspiration. And I, and I really, I thought, again, it, 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 it is Monday morning quarterbacking, but I feel pretty strongly someone who's worked, you know, long enough in this business that that was not the campaign that served her. I still think watching her against that pasty white dick, you know, <laughs> Mike Pence in a, in a, in a debate. Yeah. Like I still hope, you know, particularly if it's one of the guys uh, left. I mean, she is the easiest choice in the world as a vice president. I mean, I think Stacey Abrams should get serious consideration. I think Catherine Cortez Masso, you know, in, in Nevada as a Latina woman who was an attorney general there for eight years and will have been a senator for four, has the right experience. Uh, we want to talk to the reason we, we've never been able to win Texas is because we've underperformed with the Latino Latina vote. Arizona's in play. So I'm not saying definitively Kamala Harris, but I honestly think whoever it ends up being, uh, you know, should should look very strongly at the three women I just mentioned and think, you know, they all could play a key role and all would reflect the diversity, intelligence, grace, you know, of the Democratic Party. That's right. You and, know, and I hope that, that they do that and they consider in, that anyhow. And in fact, I, I want to be perfectly clear here that I'm not endorsing Kamala Harris. I don't have a favorite right now. And that's part of my personal conundrum with the Democrats at this point. But I have I Me do. Too. I do have all this. my favorites are gone, man. I may be a big. <laughs> Sorry, you know, I have this theory though about Kamala and the vice presidency. Going back to that, and it involves Joe Biden. I get the sense that Joe Biden is setting himself up to be a one-term president by choice, just because of his age and and the grueling yeah. nature of not only the campaign but being president for four years, and then the possibility of running again, and then being president for another four years. I feel like Joe Biden's got to pick someone. Uh, a vice president who can very easily step into the presidency. And I think the perfect candidate along those lines would be someone like Kamala Harris. And there are a lot it of people who... the real world is, is what we know. You know, it does yeah. affect the real world. Right, right. And so I, ahead, I feel like whoever whoever the vice presidential nominee is, if it's if the presumptive nominee is Joe Biden, whoever he chooses has to be ready to run for president in four years, not eight years. And I think Kamala Harris might actually be that be that person, not only unifying well, the Democrats, the, yeah, in the near term, but also providing a, a solid uh, presumptive nominee in four years. Don't you think? And that's where the problem may be with uh, you know. And I'm a huge fan, so don't get me wrong, with a Stacey Abrams only that. You know, she hasn't had even, you know, beyond state senator, she yeah. hasn't had statewide experience. That's why I threw out Catherine Cortez Masto, who I don't think a mm-hmm. lot of people have talked about. But as a Latino woman and a two term attorney general of Nevada and a U.S. senator from Nevada, 
who will have been in office four years by the same amount Obama was in when he became president, you certainly could make an argument she'd be very ready to be vice president, and after four years as vice president, very ready to be president. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, so, no, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, it has to be, if it's one of the, the, the white guys, it has to be a woman of color. I mean, or white gals, because I, I guess we only have white people left, <laughs> uh, sadly. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, if it's one of them, I think it has to be somebody like that for turnout purposes, but also to reflect who we are and who the base of our party is. I think it has to be. And, and I mean, you know, look, my favorite ticket going into this, the ticket that I wanted after 18 and after what Beto did in in Texas is I wanted a Kamala Beto ticket. I was thinking, you know, two, two got two people with huge charisma, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and you got the base in California and you got, you know, uh, the swing in Texas, you got youth, you got charisma, you got, you know, you have all these things, the diversity. I was a huge fan of that ticket. And of course, being the jinx I am, they're both out. So I don't know what the hell, I mean, they're, you know, I don't actively dis. I'm, I'm not, a, I've never hit, I'm not a huge Bernie Sanders fan, um, much less of a Tulsi Gabbard fan, as in I loathe her. Um, I don't, I think Yang is sort of ridiculous. Uh, I'm not going to even dignify yeah. Marianne Williamson with a discussion. Um, so, so, I mean, you know, I think we're down to a very, you know, but I mean, look, I'll be honest. I really, I, I don't think as much as I like, you know, he seems, he's a decent guy. I don't agree with everything. I certainly don't agree with his college plan I think is wrong, but when it comes to Pete Buttigieg, I like a lot about him, but I just, I, I'm not going to change in that. I don't think he'd go from being mayor of South Bend to president of the United States. Yep. I just, I, I mean, I'm sorry. That's, that's too big of a jump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I so agree. I don't know where I am anymore. Mm. You know, I may I may piss off some really piss off some people on the left and come down on Bloomberg side <laughs> because I don't. I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, it's not that 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 I started off there, but I, you know, I like Elizabeth Warren still. I do worry. You know, when when we talk about you know you talk about Medicare as an option, seventy plus percent support it. Medicare for all, when you're talking to people in unions and saying you have to give up your health care that you fought for that may be better. When you're talking, look, my own family, and again, I'm not repeating right-wing talking points. I hope nobody thinks that. I'm concerned because I have a mom who has never in her life voted for a Republican, you know, uh, statewide. Well, she may have voted for Pataki once, but okay. Has never, almost never voted. And he was a pro-choice, pro-gun control, you know, the whole deal. Has voted every Democratic president as liberal as hell. And my dad, who passed away six years ago, was an officer at the Merchant Marine Academy in New York, one of the five federal academies, mm-hmm. got the best insurance you can get from that because you get the best stuff in the world, which was passed on to my mom when he passed away. Mm-hmm. And I saw when he went through his heart disease, I saw what they paid for. You know, and Medicare covered the vast majority of it, 70 percent. I don't remember what, but almost all the rest of it, they because they had such amazing insurance to, through the Merchant Marine Academy, covered the rest of it. And if my mom is scared, you know, that Elizabeth Warren winning might mean, you know, if it, if it ever did pass, which is a whole other question, mm-hmm. but is scared that if, if it ever passed that she would lose the better insurance. Well, that's a problem, you know? And yeah. so, I mean, we need to have these, be honest and have these conversations. I mean, I feel like Elizabeth Warren, somebody who I was very much in favor of, allowed herself to get cornered in this position where I don't think it's the best place to be. And I think a lot of people, you know, it leaves a lot of people who want more choice, not less saying, you know, I mean, Medicare, absolutely. I mean, should be an option to every single person. It should be free to anybody who can't afford it. Yeah. But to now tell people that have other stuff that they like better, they have to go into it. I mean, I don't know what your feeling is on that, Bob, but I think it's certainly, it, it concerns me because my mom certainly isn't doing any of this stuff for, 
cynical reasons. She doesn't give a crap. She she just wants to vote for the best Democrat, yeah. and it worries her. Yeah, and in fact, I uh, I don't necessarily support Pete Buttigieg, but I do like his plan for health care. I do like the idea of Medicare for all who want it, giving people that choice. Because that I feel I like, like, yeah, because yeah. I I totally feel like if uh, if you're running on eliminating private insurance, you're setting a trap for yourself. And I'll tell you how. I do like Elizabeth Warren too, but I feel like if she goes forward with her plan for health care as president, she's running into a major, major trap of her own setting. And I'll tell you what it is. If she tries to pass Medicare for all exactly the way she's proposing it and then has to settle for something closer to Pete Buttigieg's plan or even Joe Biden's plan about a public option, which I also kind of like, I feel like Elizabeth Warren, if she compromises her position on Medicare for all while trying to legislate it, that everyone who supported her in the campaign, everyone who's part of her coalition is going to go, Oh, look at she's selling out to the big insurance companies. Look at her. And then suddenly the Republicans win back Congress in the midterms. And then Elizabeth Warren doesn't win reelection because her supporters begin to abandon her for not pursuing the thing that she promised. And I feel like that kind of happened to Obama, even though he didn't necessarily set himself up for it. Not as much. You know, he did definitely change his health care plan a bit. He hadn't run on an individual mandate, whatever, whatever. But not in that. You're right. Certainly not anything close to what. The pivot Warren would have to make, and, mm. and look, I want to be clear. I really like Elizabeth Warren, and will happily support her. Yeah. Um. And I, I she, at one point, she was my favorite. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. I worry about this. You know, and so look, you know, I don't know. Everybody has flaws left. Who's in there? You yeah. know, uh, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of what I think is the best. But you know, it doesn't much matter. Klobuchar, you know, Pete Buttigieg, Bloomberg, hell, Bernie Sanders. I, you know, I've had a lot to say about Bernie Sanders, and I'll crawl through broken glass to pull a lever and, frankly, you know, if I have the money, max out yep, I Bernie agree. Sanders if he's our nominee against Donald Trump. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, we're not getting you – know, I try to remind people of this. Everybody forgets this. You know, they have the emotions come in. We're not getting married, folks. Um, yeah. we're, we're, we're voting for the person who best represents our values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, against a, an aspiring fascist. Yeah, and, and while it's I, not, it's, this isn't difficult. Yeah, and, and while I understand the reality of what we're doing by saying, you know, we'll we'll vote for Bernie Sanders or whoever happens to be the nominee in order to defeat Donald Trump. On one hand, I know the reality of that, and I accept the reality of that. On the other hand, in the back of my head, Cliff, I'm going. You know what? Donald Trump is controlling our choices for the Democratic nomination. Why is Donald Trump allowed to control our choices for the Democratic nomination, which he kind of is, um, maybe not overtly, but it, based on what kind of president he's been, we have no choice but to choose a Democratic nominee based on this danger that we are inherently facing in Donald well, Trump. So that's that's a little something that I resent, but it's also, again, a feature of this crisis that we're in right now. But, you know, I want well, that's to... that's the thing, and I know, I, I know that it makes me, you know, I know that, oh, my, I may be... The, the, the crowd that, that, that came after me uh, when we had David from on our show and you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. a neoliberal sellout and all that, which, you know, I, I you know, I, I eat neoliberals for breakfast is what I do. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, the, 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 the and I may be putting myself in danger, but I have to admit it does cross my mind now with who's left mm-hmm. crosses my mind of a Michael Bloomberg and the kind of money that he would, I mean, I know what he would spend versus Trump. And I know mm-hmm. that no charge would go unanswered. And I know that. And then I think to myself, if it did end up being Bloomberg and he did pick a Stacey Abrams or a Kamala Harris, 
uh, you know, when he first joined the race, I was very against it. I'll yeah. be honest. And this is full disclosure as somebody who worked for very closely with every town for gun safety. Uh, I couldn't agree with them more on guns, but I disagree with him on a number of things and mm. that's fine. Um, but I, I, I'm in a different place now, now that Kamala Harris is out and some of the other things that have happened. I mean, I don't, I just don't know at this point, no. but, uh, you know, I'm nervous as to what they're going to do to our nominee with the, all the free airtime, the billions of free airtime of Fox news, you know, and all of that. And, and we only, you know, at least with Bloomberg, I know he can rival that. There's nothing they can do to him that he can't respond to. Yeah. Right. Right. I don't know. Yep, yep, and I, I just I just noticed that uh, Steve Chabot is apparently has taken the stage and is now filibustering right. in the uh, in the hearings. Yeah, tell me a piece of shit. <laughs> well, speaking you of that, that, yeah, you know, I want to talk about this real quick with you, Cliff, because uh, you mentioned Ralph Northam a few minutes ago. The name popped into my head as being someone. Uh, along with Justin Fairfax, who, whether they tried to or not, actually kind of incorporated a little bit of Trumpism into their overall strategy for facing down the the controversy that they found themselves in uh, not too long ago. Yeah, and specifically with Ralph Northam, the idea was, okay, well, what Donald Trump has showed us is if we just power through, the news cycle is going to change and no one's going to remember that we said this and did this awful shit. And so that's... That was the, uh, I think, the version of Trumpism that they kind of co-opted and were able to use to wiggle out of those two uh, adjoining crises. And they were right. Yeah, yeah. What are we going to say, right? I mean, they, they got it right. I right. Mean, we're in an age where part of it is, is, is Trump sucking up all the oxygen from, from the news, you know, and so that it's easy for the news cycle to change because he's obviously going to say or, or tweet some dumb shit within 24 hours you know, and, and change the conversation. But on mm. top of that, just the world we're in now, Yeah. you know, uh, I mean, Twitter and Facebook and, and, you know, 24 hour news cycles that, that, that I know we've had the 24 hour news cycle for a while, but for the first many years of its invention, it wasn't truly 24 hours the way it is now. Yeah. And now um, it's you know, tw- 24 I, seconds now. <laughs> right. I mean, like, I, I, I think that it, it, it's worrying <laughs> because mm. I think they, they realize that too. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, um, the, the, what's really concerning, Cliff, is that um, Ralph Northam was the first test case that I saw, but now I'm seeing it more and more often where I feel like Trumpism and its various aspects are starting to bleed, maybe not every aspect of it, but certain aspects are starting to bleed into the Democratic Party, at least at the presidential level. Like, I'm seeing Andrew Yang developing kind of a cult of personality that's similar to Donald Trump's yep. red hats, where Andrew well, they Yang... they also do the resentment stuff, yeah, right? Right, right. The- the news media is blocking us out. They're not yeah, Tulsi. Us. Yeah, like, Tulsi's especially doing that one. Yeah, that's that's definitely an, an I aspect. I feel like I'm looking at them and I'm like, I, you know, you're running for president. I don't know even what the fuck you did before. I don't know enough about Andrew <laughs> Yang to even know. What I do know is right. he's never held any office that uh, I know. Mm-hmm. And, like, people that have held office, are, you know, whether I like them as candidates or not, you know, Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, Steve Bullock just a few days ago, like a mayor, a two-term mayor of Montana, you know, I mean, people that have actually like governed stuff mm-hmm. left and right are being kicked out, Yep. you know, are basically are, 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 are don't have the support and aren't even getting, I mean, you know, maybe he never was really running. I don't know what the fuck Joe Sestak was doing, <laughs> but if you think about for a second that, that a member of Congress, you know, uh, who, who ran a credible, credible campaign for the U S Senate almost won and is a former admiral, 
could not get up on that stage, but Andrew fucking Yang could. Yeah, right, right. You know, and and and, and Marion Williamson could. And yep. I mean, you know, I mean, even like again, when I'm coming back to Buddha Judge, you mean a mayor of South Bend? I mean, Steve Bullock couldn't get up on that stage. He governed his state. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, again, like I think. I don't know, man. Well, yeah, it's, I, it's I a feel like conversation, but the primary process is broken. Yeah. We started in two incredibly white states. It now really is a factor of, of money, which is why I think, frankly, whether I want to be or not, Bloomberg's got a great shot mm-hmm. because money determines so much of this stuff. Now, you know, media bias determines so much of it. I mean, I almost feel like I saw somebody else write this already. So I would just be, I don't think I'd be, be doing something different. I'd be adding to it, but I almost feel like, you know, we've gotten worse than the age of smoke-filled rooms picking mm-hmm. our nominees. Yeah, I mean, at least then they were trying to pick somebody that that appealed to all factions of the party. Now, anybody who can demagogue well or has a lot of money, you know, that's who's going to win. Yeah, I feel like more and more often we're mistaking the ability to campaign with the ability to lead, and that's I think negatively impacted a lot of our candidates who are not the greatest campaigners. I mean, I, I see people watching these hearings and going, "Jesus, I wish Fiona Hill would run for president, or I wish Sally Yates would run for president." But you know what? Right. They would be terrible campaigners, and we would we would destroy them based on performance, wouldn't we? Even though the, I think they would each be fantastic leaders at, at the presidential level. Um, and then the converse yep. of that is, uh, well, uh, maybe even another example is Andrew Yang is a decent campaigner, but he's got no record as having won anything. I at least want to see a presidential candidate who's at least won a single election to, to inform right. us that he can actually do it. And he hasn't even achieved that. So that's another aspect of what I'm talking about. But I feel like we often confuse these things, like the ability to deliver a great stump speech versus the ability to lead. I mean, Donald Trump's another case where he does these rallies and he gets all people lathered up and, and freaked out. And then he's a terrible president. And they, they did, they made the same mistake. The red hats did. They supported this guy because they liked what he said during the campaign. Then he becomes president. Yeah. And then he can't do it. He can't do the leadership role that they've elected him to do. Right. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think it's a sort of, I, you know, I think our whole process for picking leaders right now, in this country is in kind of a dangerous place. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It I mean, really is. We're just lucky that, that we're lucky, frankly, that, that Trump's an idiot. You know? <laughs> I mean, imagine if there was like a talent, imagine if a talented demagogue had come along, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yeah. frankly, we might've been in worse shape if Ted Cruz won. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I, mean, I was, I was thinking evil as Trump, but a lot smarter. Yeah. I was thinking that when Jonathan Turley was talking, like, what, what happens if Jonathan Turley, like a candidate who sounds erudite and smart, but comes on and is delivering absolute gaslighting and and just under the surface of all the words and the uh, historical scholarship, just is saying moronic, awful things. And that's my one of my many big worries. But, you know, I want to let you go here in just a second, Cliff. But before I do, I have a, a multiple choice question. Um, does, does, does the president, A get impeached and convicted B resign under pressure from Senate Republicans C get acquitted in the Senate, but loses the election or D and this is doing a lot of heavy lifting. None of the above. So again, a wow, impeached a convicted. words in there. <laughs> a impeached and convicted resign. Um, yeah. I mean, just uh, generally to ask, what do you think is going to happen with Trump? How does he eventually get ousted from office? If at all, um, I, I, what I think is probably going to happen is I think he's going to, 
uh, he's absolutely going to be impeached by the House. Yeah. And um, I think some Republicans are, are going to get scared towards the point of, uh, in the Senate of thinking about maybe, you know, convicting. But I don't think in the end they will. And so I think it'll be it's, it'll be seen of your of your choices, because I think by the time it's all over, um, I mean, again, the Democrats, as we've learned, tell can fuck anything up. Um, but if they run this right, and I've been speaking of this for a while, keep the Ukraine part of this, focus on the Ukraine. Yep. Nobody said you couldn't impeach somebody more than once. And nobody said you couldn't hold other hearings. There's simply no way that they shouldn't spend the next nine months, um, you know, through next year, looking into all manner of presidential financial corruption. Yep. Because the thing that people respond to the most, as I've learned in the work I've done, it's one thing when the guy at the top is dishonest, whatever. It's one thing when the guy at the top is stealing money. It's a whole other thing when they're stealing it out of your pocket. And when he's having, you know, the military stop off at his stupid Turnberry, you know, uh, golf course that nobody uses, you know, in Scotland so that they can make money off. All the various ways he and his cabinet members have enriched them themselves off us. Hell, I'd pull Elaine Chow into it. She's done a number of corrupt things. And let's, let's let Mitch McConnell answer for that. You know, I mean, if the Democrats are smart about it and do that, I honestly think there's, if we run, there, there's very little way Trump can win re-election. But yeah. it's that we have to not let you know let him up off the mat. Yeah, I worry right. sometimes that, oh, that no. we, we're prone to doing that. Yep. yep so I don't know I if know. that's a full answer you wanted. Uh, but <laughs> no, that's, it's perfect. That's what I can do. Yeah, that's perfect. So what's going on with the uh, Ohio Innocence Project these days? How's uh, Mark Godsey doing? He's healthy and still working, and everything's good there because uh, he's, he's he's healthy. The project is growing. We're doing great. Um, you know, and it's incredible. We we're, we're approaching 30 guys that we've gotten and gals yeah. out of prison, mostly men. Wonderful. But, um, also, we, you know, we, we, we have a woman who we got out to also unjustly, uh, one of the best things I've ever done in my life being associated with that. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm lucky, frankly lucky that they allowed me to serve, you know? And I ask about God's health just as a general question, because this guy is, uh, one of the great heroes of our time. And the longer he can do this, the, I think the better off we're all going to be, especially when we're looking at, uh, the justice system in this country. And well, the, he's the, a former prosecutor, just for everybody to know, Southern District of New York, which a lot of people are now familiar with. Yes. He in fact, mentored, he mentored Treat Barrara. Yep, yep, 100%. Um, and he, well, he left, moved back home to Ohio, got, you know, religion or put it however you want, but started thinking that he'd, he'd cut some corners, not him, but the system as a prosecutor, and hadn't given enough consideration to other things and decided to devote his life to this. Yeah, uh, yeah. To joining, you know, the other side, essentially, and getting people out. And he, no, he's... He's an incredible human being, and we're lucky to have him. And it goes far beyond Ohio, which now Ohio is easily one of the two or three most effective of all the state programs in the country. That's right. I mean, he chairs these international committees. He goes all over the world um, and, and helps set up programs in other countries. It's, it's, it's really actually kind of incredible. It really is. So he's doing well, and we hope he will do well forever. We need him. Yeah, in fact, if anyone's looking for a, a place to donate uh, money here at the end of the year, we're coming up uh, on uh, the holidays. If you're looking for a, a nonprofit, something to give your money to, I can think of no better group than the Ohio Innocence Project or the Innocence Project just nationally, too. Uh, just the, the work that I've oh, seen them you, do, uh, seen you guys do, has been.
been uh, one of the most fulfilling things of my entire career. Uh, just being a, a teeny tiny part of that process was uh, was such yeah, a thrill. Yeah, Bob isn't giving himself credit, folks. He's he's helped us with some some consulting on video that has made some of our video productions just incredible. So, oh, thank you. So, uh, thanks thanks to you, Bob. I mean, you know, team effort. Everybody's involved, and it's it's been it's been incredible to watch and be a part of. So. All right. Well, the unprecedented, unprecedented podcast. Everywhere you get your podcasts, also on uh, Patreon. What's the Patreon uh, URL? Is it patreon.com slash unprecedented pod? Is that what it is? Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay, great, great. Well, link in the description. I'll put the yeah, link folks. down there, and we'll be uh, all set with that. Come Cliff. on by there, folks. And if you want to insult me or you know anything else, ask me questions. I'm at, at Cliff Schechter on Twitter. Um, you know, I act uh, much the same way I do on this show, which yeah. you may not like, but I have to do. <laughs> well, and, uh, <laughs> I have to say, you're, good to meet new people. you're one of my favorite people in the world. You're a brilliant, brilliant man. It's just a shame that you hate talking. That's I know. probably why you don't want to have me on the show. Like, this guy never shuts the fuck <laughs> up. <laughs> All what right, do I my friend. What do to get words in here with this <laughs> asshole? All right, my friend. I We're apologize. Gonna talk to you again real, real soon. Take care. I look forward to it. Take care, buddy. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Let's face it, hiring is challenging. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, listeners to the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.